Rich Summers. Welcome to the Patrick Real Estate Show. I was just telling you just recently, you're somebody that I definitely look up to in the sense of what you're doing and what you're creating. Honestly, one of the more giving down to earth people I've met in this space. And you just keep doing you, man. You're doing a lot of content doing a lot of acquisitions, short-term rentals. That's how we met. But now you're going into boutique hotels, which is very interesting. So I'm excited just to dive in and really understand more about the space and to understand more about boutique hotels and all the things that you've been up to with Summer's Capital. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on the uh, the podcast. And I appreciate all the kind words. I'm excited for this journey and I'm excited for this conversation today. Yeah, for sure. We have to get started with the journey. Like, how did you get here? Maybe real quick, your background. Yeah, so I grew up middle class. My mom was an immigrant from Taiwan. Both of my parents know the value of working hard and saving your money. And so I was taught from a young age to go to school, get good grades, go to college and get a job. And for the most part, that's what I did. I have a background in retail and sales. Had my first sales job when I was going to college selling cell phones out of a kiosk out of a mall. And that was my first taste of what it's like to control your paycheck to a certain degree. And some of my coworkers went on to sell cars and they were like, Hey dude, come slang some cars with us. You'll make a little <laughs> bit more money. And so I went on and I started selling cars at Mossy Nissan, which is a dealership out here in San Diego and loved it. I have a background playing sports. I used to play baseball and basketball as a kid growing up. And so I have that competitive spirit. And so I think that's why I really excelled at sales. And so I wanted to sell commercial real estate because for someone that's in sales, that's where the big commissions are. You do a couple of deals a year and you're pretty much set. So I got out of school in 2008 and I interviewed with a couple of commercial real estate brokerages, CBRE, which they're still around today and Grubb and Ellis. And both of them were like, Hey dude, this is 2008, right? So everything's starting to come down in the real estate space. And they said, Hey dude, we love your hustle. We think you'd be great at it, but this is not a great time to get into the industry. And so they pulled those internship positions. And I found myself on a car lot wondering what am I going to do with my life? And so I stumbled across a job as an air traffic controller with the federal government. And uh, they called me and they said, if you can pass a drug test, we're going to, we're going to hire you. And uh, we have a spot for you out in Oklahoma city, packed up my bags. And I went out to Oklahoma. That was where the initial training was. And then I spent six years in LA and then I transferred back down to San Diego, did another five years here. So 11 years total, but along the way I read the book, rich dad, poor dad. And I remembered real estate. And I thought, man, how old were you at this point? Yeah. So this is just a few years ago to put in a perspective. So wow. this is like early 2019. And I remember real estate and I was like, man, I got to figure this out because at the time I was just clocking in, clocking out, collecting a paycheck, loved the job. I met some really cool individuals in that space. A lot of them I'm still friends with today, guys and gals. A lot of them invest in my real estate deals and they're great people. For me, I just felt like I needed more out of life. And so I just read that book and then I read another book and started listening to podcasts and I just became obsessed, man. And I started reading books and podcasts. I started going to meetups and networking events before I ever owned any real estate. And uh, literally every hour outside of my workplace, I was just like studying and educating myself. And I did at the time what society tells us is too risky, but I cashed out my 401k and my retirement plan. And that was my seed money to get started. My first deal was 11 unit apartment building out in Cincinnati. C-class deal had all the problems, bought it from a slumlord, but that was my first deal. And I learned a lot from it. Shortly after that, I partnered with a couple guys. Who Let's hold on on that first deal. I feel like 
yeah. a first deal. It's you glossed over it, but I know mm-hmm. it's something that is definitely interesting to a lot of people trying to get into real estate and mm-hmm. trying to do that first deal. Can you mm-hmm. maybe explain how you were able to just like effortlessly get the deal? I know there's more to it. Yeah. Yeah. There is definitely a lot of educating going on and networking with brokers and analyzing different markets. I definitely had the assist paralysis back then because it's okay. Like you want to, you want that first deal to go well. And so you're like analyzing all these different markets and deals and you don't know which one you should pull the trigger on. But with my analysis, I knew I wanted cash flow, And so that's what brought me to Cincinnati. I like that they had higher cap rates, decent population growth and good employment fundamentals. And so started looking at some C-class stuff up there and found this 11 unit deal that was on LoopNet. The broker who is actually, I'm friends with the broker today. I bought another deal from, he's great. So shout out to JD Shmerji with Marcus and Millichap <laughs> Cincinnati. But that said, that was the first deal, man. And it had all the problems. Bought it from a slumlord. It had all the deferred maintenance. Bought it for 33000 a door, I think. And as soon as we closed on it, like four of the 11 tenants like moved out. And that was interesting and started renovating those units. And shortly after, I realized like that property manager was not the right fit. And so literally like two months in, I pivoted and went to another property manager and they've been great ever since. And so that was a learning lesson early on. It's like the second that you feel like you have the wrong property manager in place, it's probably already too late and you should just make that decision. And so fast forward a little bit, we ended up renovating the majority of the units. We bumped all the rents up and then I refinanced that deal about 18 months later and pulled all my money out and then some, but that was the first deal, man. And I learned a lot. It was a full burr. It was a full burr and then some, yeah. Wow. And uh, and then shortly after that deal, partnered with a couple guys that I work with as air traffic controllers at the time. And uh, we partnered and we joint ventured. They also cashed out their 401ks and we bought a 32 unit C-class apartment in Indianapolis, Indiana. And um, that was the same deal. It was like a lot of deferred maintenance, bought it from a slumlord. We renovated 50% of the units. And then we actually sold that property two years later for 3X what we had paid for it. Wow. Uh, and then we did a, a 1031 out of that deal. But shortly after that one, partnered with a couple mentors, a John and Tony Azar out of North Carolina. They're based out of Charlotte. They own about 5,000 units and have about $600 million of apartments in their portfolio. And they taught us everything from how to underwrite bigger deals, how to raise capital, how to source investors, how to put together a business plan. And we co-sponsored a couple larger deals with them, 150 units, the Arbors in Greensboro, and then also Timber Creek Apartments. We still own both of those deals. That's 145 units also located in Greensboro. How did you meet those mentors? Yeah. So we knew at the time we're like, okay, we invested everything we had, our 401k money into these deals, the 11 unit, and then the 32 unit in Indy. And so we knew that the next progression would be to learn how to raise private money and start taking down bigger deals. And so we started looking for mentorship groups. We interviewed seven or eight of them, like Michael Blanc, Jake and Gino, some of those players. But what we wanted was we wanted to work with guys that were more concerned about buying assets versus building their educational platform. And I feel like there's a lot of coaches out there that are more, they bought a couple of deals and they're more interested in building out their educational platform versus buying assets. And we didn't want that. And so we had this group on our podcast and they were great. And uh, somehow we just kind of hit it off with them and they offered us this partnership to work together. And they said they'd even co-sponsor and sign on some loans for us. And so we ended up doing it and it worked out really good. And I learned a lot from them. I still, I think today I owe a lot of my credit and success to them. And I still reach out to them today. Should I have any high level questions? So stand in the shoulders of giants. Have you ever heard of that? I have not, but that's pretty good. Pretty good. That's what it is. They've probably had mentors themselves. And now 
it's crazy because you're giving back to people online right now through content and through a lot of different means, which we'll get to. So you got these units with these mentors of yours, right? The bigger deals. When did that transition start going into short-term rentals and boutique hotels? Yeah. So before I had the mentors and uh, right around the time we were closing on that 32 unit end of, end of 2019, I bought, I backed into my first short-term rental. It was a two bedroom condo here in San Diego. Got it for no money down. Lived on the property for two months while I set it up. And then I launched it as a short-term rental just on Airbnb. I was doing everything at the time, the guest communication, I was coordinating the housekeeping, the maintenance, everything. And that thing was just cash flowing from day one. And so then the pandemic drops early 2020. And I noticed this thing was still staying full. And so that gave me the confidence to say if I could buy another one. And so I remember this, it was early 2020. I think it was May, the pandemic had just dropped. There was bad news everywhere. And mm -hmm. it was Mother's Day and it was like raining. And there was a brand new listing here in San Diego. It was a two unit listing. It was a three bedroom, two bath house on a big lot that was zoned for four units. And in the back, they had just built this brand new ADU and they had furnished both of these, these units and they were going to put it on Airbnb and they got spooked because of the pandemic. So they listed it. I show up, it's Mother's Day morning, it's raining. And the agent, the listing agent, it turns out she's also the seller. And I'm touring this property and they have a two car garage below the ADU that just happened to have nine foot ceilings, a level slab, access to electrical. And I thought, wow, this could be a, a J ADU and be a third unit. And so I said, hey, do you guys have a lot of tours set up? And she's none today because Mother's Day, but she's tomorrow, I got a bunch of tours set up. And so I said, Hey, I think her name was Caroline. I was like, yo, Caroline, I said, I'll give you whatever <laughs> you want. Let's lock this up right now. So we ended up tying it up that night and that deal, man, I bought that for no money down. The furniture was included and I actually negotiated the closing costs. So you negotiated seller's finance. No. So I got this. Remember I was working the air traffic control jobs. So yeah. Navy federal credit union, got it. they're the ones that did two, no, no money down loans mm. for my first couple Airbnbs. Got it. And their primary residence loans, but don't forget a listener. When you sign those loan docs, as long as you have every intention to live on the property as a primary residence, when you sign those loan docs, what happens after that plans change and they know that. And so as long as you're paying your debt service, they're not going to say anything, man. I did technically live on the property for a little bit while I was setting it up. And Hey, guess what? My plans changed. I decided to operate as a short-term rental, but I got into both of those deals for no money down. And those deals were the ones that actually allowed me to get out of the day job. Wow. Yeah. So that's a critical point, right? Is mm. being able to leverage your job because your job allowed you to get those financing options, yeah, right? Um, having a W2 also helps to get traditional financing for mm -hmm. your first deals. I did the same thing. Yeah. I got, I was in a job and I qualified and I got the job or I got the property. And four months later, I was gone. You yeah. Know? I love that. it, that's part of the game. So if you're in a W2, it's always good to leverage that. Yeah. With that being said, 0% down. Talk, can you talk a little bit about the laws and regulations for Airbnbs in San Diego and in LA area? How does that? fair right now. Yeah. So I don't know LA, but I'll speak on San Diego. Recently, there's been a change in regulatory environment. Prior to this, the rumor was there's about 16,000 short-term rental listings in the city of San Diego, and they were going to limit it to 1% of the housing supply, basically cutting it from the 16,000 to about 5,500. They were going to issue these permits via a lottery system. And so I thought, okay, we have about a 30% chance of getting a permit. And so the language said one permit per host, not one permit per owner. 
And so what we did was we had the team all, each of these three listings that I have in San Diego, three of us hosted the three listings. So we applied and it turned out we ended up getting all three. The city came out after the application process ended and they said less than the 5,500 applied. I don't know if people were sleeping on the wheel or they just didn't know about it <laughs> or they just didn't bother, but basically everyone that applied got a license. And so effective, I believe May of 23, you're going to need a permit to legally operate. So I think it's going to bode well for those who got the permits. Really, It's good. also going to bode well for those who own hotels or boutique hotels in San Diego. And uh, we currently have a 24 room boutique hotel under contract here in uh, Little Italy, downtown San Diego. So excited dude, for that. Congratulations. I heard about yeah. that. Thank and you, yeah, dude, let's transition to hotels, man. Cause this is like the juice of it, right? Yeah. You're doubling down on this from what I've seen on social media. You've been posting, you've been making a lot of adverts. I don't know if this still holds true of the time of recording, but you did say uh -huh. at one point. I'll give you $50,000 if you send me a hotel deal and we take it. Yeah, so it shows absolutely. you're really going for the hotel deals. What's the thinking behind that? Yeah. So, you know, early this year, I started a management company to where we operate and manage short-term rentals, not only mine, but also for third-party clients in a bunch of various markets around the country. And so we were growing that business, we were growing the portfolio, but when interest rates started to tick up earlier in the year, like around springtime, I started feeling less and less comfortable about advising clients to buy short-term rentals if I felt like the interest rate environment was going to cause a shift in the market and it has caused a shift. And so at that time, that's when we decided to pivot over to boutique hotels. And the two things I love about boutique hotels is you don't need to worry about the change in regulatory environment. If the regulations change, it's actually a great thing for the hotels. But the second thing is with short-term rentals is like one of the biggest nuisances is the neighbors. You can't pick who neighbors are, which neighbors are next to your property, right? Some neighbors are great, but some neighbors can just really be a pain, even though you're a responsible host. Yep. And so with the hotel model, if the neighbor has something to say, you can essentially tell them to fuck off. And <laughs> I love that about it. Yeah. And I think you're seeing a big shift in a bunch of different markets around the country where, you know, the the regs are changing, they're tightening. And so I think that's going to bode well for boutique hotels long-term. And so that's why I'm all in and bullish on the boutique hotel space right now. That's awesome. And it's same goes for me too. I'm actually in a hotel mastermind right now with Dia. So mm -hmm. we were taking on hotel. She didn't um, let, she didn't let me join that mastermind, by the way. What? She said, really? no. Yeah. Try to join because one of our team members wanted to get him on the up with underwriting for hotels. And so he said, Hey Dia, we want to join your mastermind. And she looked us up and she was like, well, I don't think this is going to be a good fit for you guys, but I'll offer one-on-one -on -one consulting, but I don't want you to be a part of the mastermind. And I think it's, I don't know why, but I think it has something to do with capital raising and maybe some competition there. Got it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Dang. So this landscape is, is rough, man. Anyways, you guys are still killing it. You guys have a second one coming along the way. It seems like you guys are good off with that. It seems like a trend right now with boutique hotels. Cool thing that you mentioned was the regulations. One thing mm -hmm. you didn't mention though, that also is awesome about hotels is the appraisals. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So with a short-term rental, it's residential real estate. So it's valued based on the sales comp approach. So if you can figure out a way to implement a great short-term rental business with a single family home and cash flow really nicely, it's still essentially going to be valued the same as the house across the street is on a per square foot basis. The great thing about hotels is it's commercial real estate and commercial real estate is valued, not a hundred percent, but it's mostly valued based on the income approach. So NOI or net operating income divided by the market cap rate 
equals value. And they do still take into account sales comps and that sort of thing. But generally speaking, if you can figure out a way to increase your net operating income, you're going to be directly forcing your appreciation with the boutique hotels. I love it because it gives you more control of the asset, but also you're not just going with the tides of the ups and downs of any market cycle. Yeah, hundred percent. And with hotels and regulations that you were mentioning, let's say that for instance, in Colorado Springs, or even in, uh -huh. let's just use yours, for example, sure. San Diego lottery sure. system, you can't get a short-term rental, which permits cap it. You mm -hmm. have a boutique hotel. They can't really do mm -hmm. anything about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you pretty much win the game. Yeah. And those regulatory changes are for residentially zoned neighborhoods and being zoned commercial hotel, you are not playing with the same rules. Yeah. So if you can't beat them, join them. 100%. <laughs> you know the name of the game. That's the name of the game. And with boutique hotels, what's your strategy moving forward on that? What's the thinking? Do you have certain criteria you're looking mm -hmm. for? I know yeah. you've got one in a Northern Calif or California. And on the beach, I believe. And now you're going to San Diego. Is there, is California the only place or you're looking elsewhere? Yeah. So a couple of things right now, right now, in this climate that we're in with the high interest rates, the market's shifted. It's becoming more of a buyer's market. And depending on how long it takes the Fed to reverse course on these rates, we're going to either see a continued slowdown in 23. But with that, I can't control when the Fed reverses the rates. And so I know right now for us to buy, we need to buy steep value add stuff that where we can buy at a discount. So we're looking at underperforming, but well-located boutique hotels to where we can come in, shut down these properties, do full renovations, and then rebrand, relaunch with our in-house management company and force our appreciation that way. Because if we can force our appreciation and the market continues to dip, we're building in a cushion or a buffer. So we're not in the red, right? And so to me right now, I'm not buying turnkey. I think buying turnkey right now is very risky. And so we're buying that steep value add stuff. And to answer your question about where we like the coastal markets, we like the beachfront stuff, because generally speaking, the cost to renovate a hotel in the middle of the country, let's say Oklahoma, is going to be generally speaking the same as it would cost on the beach. But I know on the beach, you are going to make a lot more money in equity growth than you are in Oklahoma. Yep. hundred percent. Do you ever run into the issue with land values, not making the numbers make sense for the boutique hotel where like, for instance, I know me and my buddy, we were in Florida and hotels just don't make sense on the beach in some mm -hmm. places. Because the pricing guidance is so high. Is that why? Yeah. Cause high right. cap. Well, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. We come across that all the time. Obviously like the seller's expectation typically is what drives these deals to not work out on our end. But if we find a deal that we really, really, we really, we have no issue submitting it in an LOI at a price that works for us. And one of two things happens, either they say no, and then we just tell the broker, Hey, thank you for the opportunity. Let us know if anything changes, but also that broker knows we're serious because we just submitted an offer. And so the next time he has an opportunity, guess who's going to think of first, right? He's going to hit us up. And then number two, you never know because the seller can counter. Expectations change. So just because the guidance was 6 million, we submit an offer at 4.5. You never know. They could counter and be right there at 5 million. You just never know. For sure. I love the approach of actually submitting LOIs because LOIs is like yeah. a soft commitment. It's really great for explaining why you are trying to put this 
hotel under contract and why you're justifying mm. your price point. Yeah. I love that. Some people just go straight for the purchase agreement. I don't think that's the way to go. I think otherwise, if you can. Yeah. I've also realized that boutique hotels or just commercial in general falls out of contract more often. If Even if they don't go with your, you could be second yeah. in line. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. The other thing that we really target right now within the boutique hotels is we target seller financing. Because we are buying underperforming hotels, often the in-place cash flow does not support the pricing guidance. And so if you go to get a traditional bank or credit union loan or an SBA loan, it does not meet the DSCR requirements, which, so that means we either need to target private financing, bridge loan, hard money loan, or seller financing. And so for right. us, seller financing is way easier. We don't need to sell business plans to private equity lenders. We don't need to get fully underwritten and go through all that process. And so with the seller finance, these loan docs with the seller finance is like one of the easiest things you ever do. It literally like you just sign a couple pieces of paper. It's very easy and you can get these things debted up and closed really quickly. That's awesome. And yeah. seller's financing is something I've noticed as well. Like a lot of people are taking advantage for short-term rentals and boutique hotels. That's mm -hmm. that's really cool. Real quick mm -hmm. with the yeah. seller finance, the other benefit that a lot of people don't think about is when you when you obtain seller financing, often these sellers are older, they're mom and pop, they're retiring. Um, they don't really care about the proceeds. They care more about the long-term cash flow because they're going to live off of that cash flow and yep. also reduces their tax burden. So I would yep. encourage your listener out there, find out what the motive is for the seller, because if they're just going to retire and put that money in the bank, they're often a good candidate for seller financing. But this is the benefit that a lot of investors don't think about. When a seller finances the deal to you, like with this first one we bought up in Northern California, he financed north of a million dollars. And when we go to pay that loan back 18 to 24 months down the road, when we refinance the property, he's going to see what we did with his property in just a short amount of time. He wasn't able to do that over the 20 years that he owned the property. And so for him to see what we do in 18 months and then pay him back, guess what he's going to do with that money right after we pay him back? He's going to give it right back to us. And now he becomes our largest investor. There so think go. about that. It's really smart. That's really smart. Yeah. I like that approach because then it's it's proof of work. It's you're showing mm -hmm. through action as opposed to just telling people. A lot of people talk the talk, but you mm -hmm. walk the walk when you do that. So for sure. Absolutely. And and he's like on the ground level. So he knows how hard that is to do. So the fact yeah. that you can pull it off, it's like I have confidence in this team. Yeah. So that's 100%. awesome. One other thing about sellers financing that I really is, and I've noticed personally, maybe you have an opinion on this, but I feel like it's really hard to finance hotels. I think, I don't know what the percentage is, but I feel like a lot of hotels follow a contract because of the financing. You can't get financing for it. It's not sufficient. Uh, can you talk us a little bit more about that? Have you dealt so with I, th I think one of two things, if you're an operator out there and you're really struggling to get hotel financing, it's one of two things. Either it's not a good deal, or you just don't know enough people that can lend you money. You need to go Got make it. more contacts. It's as simple as that. Real estate is a, a people's business. And if you don't have the deals or if you don't have the lenders, you just don't have enough connections and you got to go talk to more people. Got it. Perfect. And this does this apply to financing like small business loans and like all that stuff? Right? I'm generally speaking on the front end, but at least for us, right? We're buying distress. Raise the money. I'm talking private equity loans, got it. hard money, bridge loans. You could also argue when you go to refinance into some perm debt, I feel like there's all, if you have a good deal and you have a solid business plan, the money will come. I truly believe that as long as you have the competency as an operator. I agree.
I agree. I cannot agree with that even more. But you need the competency first. Yeah. Otherwise, the good deals are not going to come. Yeah. Nobody's going to just trust you with a bad deal or with mm -hmm. a, sorry, with a hotel. If it's, if you mm -hmm. don't, you've never operated one, for instance. So cool. So with this hotel that you have in North, North California, mm -hmm. can you maybe talk about the numbers for that to see how achievable a hotel could be potentially for somebody? Yeah, absolutely. So this property we bought for just over 1.5, it 10 rooms, beachfront up in Northern California for perspective, it's up near the Oregon coast in an area called Shelter Cove. It's nicknamed the, the Lost Coast because it's remote and rural. It's Humboldt County. Um, the, this property we bought for just over 150 a door, really cheap. There was a property that just closed a couple of weeks ago called the Inn of the Lost Coast. And that one was also tired, unrenovated. And that one traded for north of 310 a door. This and is dude, for the listeners listening. Yeah. This hotel is literally on the beach in mm -hmm. California for $150,000 a door. Can't find that. Yeah. It's crazy. And I was just like, I was in Medellin, Colombia at the time working remotely. And I was in a coffee shop and I was just like calling brokers on LoopNet. And this deal was just sitting on LoopNet. And I asked the broker, I said, hey, have you guys had a lot of activity? And she goes, there's been a lot of groups inquiring, but no one's actually took the time to come up here and visit it because it's rural and remote. And the in-place financials were really bad and they weren't making any money. They said no groups actually took the time to go up there and tour the area and visit the area. And what we did was we submitted an LOI and I told the broker, I said, Hey, we'll submit an LOI. If the seller is interesting in our numbers, we'll fly up there and go tour the property. And so submitted the offer. The seller was interested. He goes, I'll fly up there with you guys. No one else has submitted an offer on this property. And so he actually flew us up there in a small airplane with his buddies and oh. we went and stayed on the hotel, we had about a 36 hour trip. And during those 36 hours, we met the innkeepers. We got to know the seller. We got to know all the surrounding innkeepers of the properties next door. And next thing you know, like the innkeepers next door, they gave us all their books. They showed us all their financials. And what we learned was the property next door was also 10 rooms. They were doing 800,000 a year in revenue where the property that we were buying was doing less than 200. Wow. That's a huge opportunity. Did you pull a co-star report before you flew up there? Um, yes, we did. We did. And so we were able to see some of the comps, but because it's so rural, there's not a lot of activity up there. Got it. So some of the comps were a little bit older, but the end of the Lost Coast, the one I mentioned that just sold for 310 a door, that was under contract. And so we called that listing broker. It was, list it was 18 rooms and it was listed at 6 million. And so he sent us all the financials and he said, it's under contract. And I said, what, what price are you guys locked up at? And he said, Hey, I can't tell you, but it's very close to the guidance. And so that gave us even more confidence, but wow. to know that this subject property was doing less than 200 a year and was losing money, but the 10 room directly next door was doing 800 a year. And she showed us all their financials. That was what ultimately gave us the confidence to move forward. And mind you, our rooms were bigger. We had living rooms, kitchens, fireplaces, the hotel next door didn't. And they were not even on Airbnb or Verbo either. They just had better operations wow. and just a dialed in property, if you would. Wow. Yeah. So that is amazing. So yeah. what's the lesson learned here? The lesson learned here is if you, first of all, don't assume that every deal on LoopNet is a bad deal. A lot of people think, oh, because it hits LoopNet, it's not a good deal. That's not true. I bought many deals on LoopNet. And I would say that the second takeaway is go check out the market, go walk these properties, go walk the markets, because you never know what you're going to learn. 
And just simply by introducing yourself to hotel operators or the innkeepers next door and just being completely transparent and upfront with them, I just tell them, hey, we're investors and we're looking at buying this hotel next door. What information can you give us? And you'd be surprised just by being transparent and honest, like what these innkeepers will give you. And this one told us everything. She was like, hey, I used to work on the property. I know the managers are stealing wow. from the owner. Like she told us everything, literally. And she wanted wow. to help us. Her name was Jennifer. So shout out to Jennifer. Shout She's out to saying. Jennifer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And so what was the deal? Would you guys lock it up under? What are the terms? How did yeah. that all come about? We got 70% seller finance at 6% interest only. We did a five-year term. So there 6%? Is a, when did you buy this? We closed on it in August of this year. That's crazy. Well, the interest rates for residential were way higher. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. I think SBA yeah, loans for hotels right now, especially the floating rates are actually above six. So that said, good lending terms there. And then what we did, because there was so much of an equity pop here. So the ARV in this hotel conservatively is like four and a half to five after we get done, because we shut it down. We did a full renovation inside and out, and we're about to relaunch it right now. But because there was so much equity growth, we actually structured the investors in the form of debt, and we didn't give them any equity, as you see in a, mm. a standard syndication. Mm. So most syndications, you're going to bring in the investors and you're going to give them equity, and you're going to have some sort of split of the equity. But what we did instead was we like we said, hey, there's so much pop that we can bring the investors in debt short term. We can give them a nice return, 20% a year, paid monthly. 20% a year? <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so they get a fixed return. And we take all the risk, personally guaranteeing the loan. And so because there's such a big pop, we'll refinance at the higher valuation when we're done with our business plan. And that new loan, the proceeds will pay off the seller and then pay off the investor note. And so it's a win-win. And we didn't know how the investors would feel about it. We had done standard syndications before that. And so we brought it to them, but they loved it. Like the capital raise filled up in less than 24 hours. And there was a lot of people wow. that couldn't get in. Yeah. Wow. No, 20% is amazing. It's crazy because people always think that like you need to raise equity to, to be able to take down a hotel deal, mm -hmm. LPGP. But my friend, Amanda, she just locked up a hotel in Palm Springs, $3 million hotel. And from, I believe it's 3 million, somewhere around there. But she pretty much did the down, did the same thing as you got debt financing and yeah. financed the rest of it through, I think, I don't know, like a probably a commercial loan. Okay. And she just put 10 liens on the property to, well, to 10 get liens, it. Holy cow. 10 liens. Yeah. That's crazy. Crazy. Right. But, yeah. but it's possible and whatever it takes to get it done for you guys. How many liens did you guys get on that property? Just one. So the seller has a first lien position and then the seller note is basically a promissory note that is we created oh. an investor LD that lends to the hotel. See as a promissory note, personally guaranteed mm. by us as the operators. Got it. So you didn't secure the loan against the hotel. Did you? No. You didn't. Okay. No. That's the difference. Yeah. So for the people listening, promissory note is just standard. You're just getting debt versus what my friend Amanda did. She pretty much, it's a binding note where uh -huh. it's against the asset. And so second lien, third lien or whatever. So sure. that's interesting. Have you, would you guys ever consider securing your investors money by putting it in a lien against the hotel? Or are you guys very confident in your abilities to pay it back? And that's not an issue. Yeah, definitely would be willing to do that. But I think one of the issues that you'll run into is a lot of the first position lien lenders might not allow for a second lien. Um, oh. But 
I think if you have a track record and you have an investor database, they're and they're investing because of you. And so for them, I think a lot of them, they don't really care if it's secured by a second position lien or it's a promissory note. They're investing in you. They believe you, they trust you with their money and they trust that you're going to take care of them. And for us, I would rather lose our money before we lose any of our investor money. 100%. I agree, man. And that's just a reputation that you hold. And that's part of the game. It's trust, right? So mm. you got to do what you got to do. So what's next? Or actually, I want to hear more about your team, man. I feel like your team just popped out of nowhere. And it's, I feel like it deserves a show because it's almost like selling sunset. Like you guys got just <laughs> a bunch of people partying, doing all these cool events, luxury boats. I'm like, <laughs> what is this like selling sunset? sunset, but in San Diego, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's funny you say that. Yeah. We just have a cool team of like awesome people. We're all here located in San Diego in downtown. We have a headquarters in Lita, Italy, and uh, we host a couple meetups here monthly. One is rooftop called beers and deals second Wednesday of every month. And then we just started another one that is a yacht meetup out on the water. And that one's super fun as well. But yeah, man, we just have a good time. We're all friends. We hang out. We, uh, we all work hard, but we also like to enjoy ourselves and network a little bit at the same time. And I think that's how the workplace should be. Like I'm not a corporate guy, right? And we're not in here with suits and ties on and micromanaging people. That's not how we operate. Yeah. And yeah. for the people that are listening to this on audio, Rich is pretty much in pretty, pretty casual. He's got a cap on, he's got a casual vest on. <laughs> yeah. It's like Google, but not. <laughs> uh, I think so the, how many people, what's up? I was going to say that I think the days of wearing a monkey suit and a shirt and tie to go out and handshake and raise money are in the past. I think authenticity is what sells today. And so just be oh, yourself. 100%. And I think that goes a long way. I'm going to, I'm going to ask, do you have tattoos? Does that stop you from raising money or doing anything with anybody? Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. That's awesome, man. You can express yourself through art and then not have to <laughs> punish, get punished yeah. by it. Yeah, uh, that's awesome, man. Tell me a little bit about your team in terms of how many people do you have? What do they do day to day? I'm curious, like your operations, like what kind of you guys are all working on? Yeah. So right now there's seven of us. Two are full-time in the Philippines as virtual assistants. They do a lot of the guest communication. And then we have five of us full-time here in the office, two on the operations side. So a lot of the property management stuff with all the short-term rentals and boutique hotels that we are managing. And then we have a director of asset management, and then we have a director of relations and uh, we have one of us also sourcing deals. Awesome. Yeah. It's so critical to have the investor relations guy. Like a lot of people yeah. definitely sleep on that role. It's yeah. so key. <laughs> yeah. And no, um, with you, what do you usually focus on day to day? Yeah. So ideally, I think the biggest lever for me is really marketing going on podcasts, building the brand, putting out content and meeting high net worth individuals. I think that's the biggest lever. And that's something that can't really be delegated out. Sure. Um, but I do have a background in sales. And so one of the things I love doing is sourcing deals. I mm -hmm. love doing it. And, but it's just not, it's not the biggest lever for me. And so mm -hmm. that said, ideally my role is solely just visionary and marketing and getting our name out there. For sure. If and, no one knows who you are, no one's going to give you money. And when you go to raise money for a deal 100%. and no one knows who you are, that's going to be a challenge. And 100%. so if you look at the most successful entrepreneurs today, they're not necessarily the best business people. There's a lot of examples of that out there, but the old days of meeting investors via the handshake model, one at a time, that's great if you do that. 
but you're never going to win against another entrepreneur who knows how to build an audience because now you're using leverage, right? When you're meeting one person at a time, you're utilizing zero form of leverage. But if you put a good piece of content out on social media and you post it, that could go out to a couple million people. And that is a form of leverage that a lot of people don't realize. And so I feel in today's age, 2023, in about a week and a half, it'll be 2023. If you're an entrepreneur or a real estate investor and you aren't putting out content, that's a big mistake in my opinion. Wow. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big thing. And I'm definitely doubling down on it. Rich is doing it. It's definitely key for sure. And we've talked about that multiple times with content and just your reach and all this. What's the plan for 2023 for Rich? What, what's he got going on? Yeah. So our target is to buy and close on $25 million worth of value add boutique hotels that we can renovate and improve and hopefully convert the 25 into 50 million. And that's our target. And so we're going to do everything we can to get there. And then once we hit that target, we'll reevaluate, reassess, see what we did right, see what we did wrong. And we'll come up with a new target. But our 10-year target is we want to own $1 billion of real estate assets. And it's not going to be all boutique hotels. I think right now that's the opportunity. But mm -hmm. markets shift and asset classes shift. And two, three years from now, we could be buying a different asset class. And I realize that. But I do know that we're going to, our goal and our target is $1 billion of assets within 10 years. Dude, that is amazing. I'm going to hold you to it, man. <laughs> I feel like you're going to get it done in less time. I, I mean it, dude. Like I, I see people and I know when people are clowning and they're not like legit, but I know you're legit. I have a really good feeling and you can put, I can put, I wish I could put money on it because I would bet right now, Rich Summers is going to be a fucking name. You're going to, you're going to know Rich Summers. It's going to be a name within the community. It's going to be huge. So just be on the lookout for that. <laughs> That's my prediction for 2023, 2024. Bold it, prediction. What is the industry look like for the boutique hotels? Because you said that it was the next opportunity asset class right now. Why is it the asset class of 2023? Yeah. If you look at the multifamily space, there is just so much capital right now looking for the same types of assets. They're looking for that value add hundred plus units and all those properties properties over the last 10 years have been bought up and renovated and improved. And so the value add within those, that asset class has been sucked dry. The other side of it is there's so many gurus out there and coaching this that are teaching people to raise money from their couch and buy apartment buildings. And so you have so many students out there. And I believe all those students are is what's dr driving up that asset class. And I feel like the, there's just no more yield. And so if you look at hotels, um, the way they're underwritten is very similar to apartments, but there's a different component. And that component is you need a operation, like you need a management company to operate these hotels and what is going to be your competitive advantage. And so I feel like with us having an in-house management company to where we can operate these properties remotely free of on-site management, it allows us to not only operate very lean from an expense standpoint, but it also allows us to bring on the manager's unit online for additional rev revenue. And then we just do the self-check-in, self-check-out model, which we're finding is very appealing in the post-COVID world. The other thing is I feel like right now, there's a lot of mom and pop sellers with these boutique hotels. And these sellers have owned these properties for 20, 30, 40 years. They don't have any debt. They 
typically probably bought them with seller finance. And so now they're <laughs> open to sell with seller finance and these properties haven't been renovated in so long. And often these owners are not implementing any marketing strategies. They're not on Airbnb. They're not on Verbo. They don't they're even know what Airbnb utilizing. is. <laughs> no, they don't. They okay. probably don't. <laughs> um, yeah, along like not- internet, like websites, like they might put up a website I don't know that their direct booking is sometimes totally off as well. Yeah. Like you said, 100%. And they're definitely not utilizing social media and they're just burnt out because a lot of these owners are the ones who were doing everything within their business. They were checking the guests in, they were doing the cleans, they're doing whatever marketing they're trying to do and the repairs they're fixing the toilets at two o'clock in the morning. So they're burnt out. And they're and living so- on site usually too. Yeah. Yeah, they're doing everything. And so with that, there's a lot of opportunity. And so to give your listener perspective, when I was underwriting apartments, we would look at 200 plus deals to find one or two that actually penciled according to the pricing guidance. But those one or two deals that penciled would have 75 property tours and 50 plus offers. And by the time you get to best and final, you would have to overpay drastically to be awarded these deals. But on the boutique hotel side, I feel like you can underwrite, depending on what your criteria is. Our threshold is very strict because we're looking for that steep value add stuff. So not a lot of deals fit our molds, but you could underwrite 20 to 25 hotel deals to find one or two really good ones. It's just a much better ROI on your time. A hundred percent. And we've seen that with even our search, like going out there to the hotels. I actually had a hotel under contract and it's insane. There's not as much competition People are really sleeping on boutique hotels. They're going to Airbnb because that was the big thing that happened. Yeah. But yeah, they think hotels are out of reach, which is crazy. Well, and that's the other thing. You were at BPCon in San Diego this past October. And literally everyone I spoke to out there were all doing short-term rentals. And all of them told me, hey, I can't wait to do my first boutique hotel because naturally that's the next progression, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many short-term rental investors out there right now that as these markets start to tighten from a regulatory standpoint, I think it's naturally going to bring more buyers over to the boutique hotel space. Right now, a lot of people are afraid to buy hotels. Maybe they're not educated or maybe they're not, they don't have the resources or means to take down a boutique hotel. But I feel like right now that's the opportunity. So we're going to go buy as many as we can while the opportunity is there. And in a couple of years, when it becomes more mainstream, we'll be happy to exit to those folks. 100%. And it's crazy because if people really just focused, and I'll tell you a story. We had a friend or Stephanie had a hotel under contract, my business partner, and she had an offer for somebody to buy the hotel from them for wholesale. So $100,000 wholesale fee. That's pretty good chunk of change just for putting something on a contract. And it was something that was on the market. It was on LoopNet. Yeah. So the opportunity is there even for some people to make money in that regard. And I always tell people, man, it's, you know, if you can find the right deal, even if you don't have the means to take it down, go wholesale it because someone will pay you a nice finder's fee just for putting the deal together. Rich, are you still paying out finder's fees as of time of this recording? Yeah. So for any of your listeners out there, if you bring us an off-market boutique hotel, it has to be off-market, can't be, don't be sending us a bunch of LoopNet deals. But if it's truly off-market and you bring it to us or make the connection and we close on that deal, we will pay you out $50,000 at close. And if you have that deal, you can email it to dealdesk at summerscapital.com. Yeah. Thanks, Rich. That's awesome. And with boutique hotels, it's a great place to be. Definitely got to hop in and do that if you want. But yeah, are you looking for investors as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. We, we're always looking for investors and we're always looking for deals. I think within this business, you need two things. You need the deals and you need the money. 100%. Cool. So let's close this off. Last three questions. And I've already asked you one of the questions. So I'm going to do like a, just give you a special one so you can special honor question. So first question I have is what book do you recommend for the listeners? It doesn't have to be real estate related either. Man, there's so many good books out there. I would have to say the one for me was multifamily millions by Dave Lindahl, because it, it teaches you the art of the deal and how to find deals, but how to take an ugly apartment building, which does translate over to hotels, how to take an ugly property and to bring it back to life and to force your appreciation and force your equity through renovations and operations. And it te teaches you a bunch of little tips in order to turn around an ugly property. And so for me, that book was a game changer. It's awesome. Great recommendation. This one is a special one for you. What, what, would you ever put out a course or education or anything mentoring wise about boutique hotels in the next 12 to 24 months? Or is that off the table? Yeah. So ironically, there is like not a lot of education out there or exactly. masterminds out there in the boutique hotel space. I think you mentioned you're in Diaz mastermind. And I believe that's the only one out there that I know of. So I think it's definitely in the future. If we take down a few more deals, I think we're open to creating a really cool and fun boutique hotel mastermind. But I want to make sure that we stay focused on the prize and that's buying assets. We're not going to get to a billion dollars of assets if we're building out an educational company. And so I you just want to make that sure before too, that is yeah. part of your values. Mm -hmm. Didn't want to find a mentor that wasn't actually doing it. You wanted to find somebody, you know, that was actively buying assets. I'll, yeah. So yeah. I, not an education business, but just somebody that yeah. actually does it day to day. Yeah. But that said, I love to pay it forward, especially being that there's not a lot of education or information out there in the boutique hotel space. So I think it's definitely in the cards. So we'll see. We'll see where 2023 takes us, but it's definitely in the cards. But if not, people can follow you on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. Instagram? Yeah. Instagram is at rich underscore summers. Perfect. And they can follow you right there and get all of the feedback. They can, can they message you? Can people message you? Yeah. You can shoot me a DM. I'm pretty active on there. I'm pretty good at responding to everything. Pretty accessible. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Rich. I appreciate you for just thanks for coming on the show, man. You're awesome. And dude, like I said, I'm putting the bet on the Rich Summers for 2023, 2024 sports betting, but for people, I promise you <laughs> it's going to happen, baby. <laughs> cool, my man. Awesome. I appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation.